He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, June 11, 2022, we break regular format to bring in our troubadour as part of the introduction. Do you know why that is, Dave Gunders? I'm honored to fill this spot, Craig, and I do know why it is. Tell everybody. Today is our 100th broadcast. Every show we feature the music of Dave Gunders. I urge you to go on Spotify or YouTube Dave Gunder's music today brings us impossible happiness. You're going to hear from Kyle Clark. He is tremendous. His word of thanks campaign, he hit 100. He raised over $9 million. We haven't done anything like that, but we honor Kyle Clark. And this show dedicated to the memories of Allen Berg and Isabella Thales. We record this on June 10. That's the day Bella got shot down by an assault weapon. June of 84, Alan Berg got murdered by an assault weapon. Dave Gunders and I are concerned about weapons, and toward the back end of the show, you'll hear Kyle Clark weigh in on his conclusion, it's the guns. We could talk about what happened at the Boulder King Supers, Uvalde, Buffalo. We can talk just happy talk, but let's recognize the common denominator, weapons of war in our community, to the detriment of all of us, Troubadour. I mean, isn't it terrible that our children have to live with this fear in their heart of gun violence? You know, gun safety, I understand. I wish that our society could begin having a conversation um, about banning assault weapons. And that does not take away our right to bear arms. I I worry that uh, people will, 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 will constantly... Uh, you know, get in the way of any kind of passage of legislation. But that's what has to happen. But we have to talk about it. Yes. The guns. And that's what Kyle Clark did. He's a thought leader. And I drew a parallel in our interview, and he objected, just like my dog objected, to Tucker Carlson, but only in the sense that he's number one rated, Kyle Clark's number one rated, fans of Kyle Clark like to quote him, Fans of Tucker Carlson know they're completely different because Tucker Carlson is a white power guy. Kyle Clark is a great representative of Colorado in my mind. He's raised over $9 million with his Word of Thanks campaign, and that included a lot with respect to the Marshall Fire. You and I are always talking about Boulder. He puts himself out there for the community, and the community loves him back. Thank you, Kyle Clark. Yeah, and thank you for doing yeah. our show. Yeah. Impossible Happiness, our show born of the pandemic, so is the Word of Thanks campaign. And it's an honor to converse with you every show about everything, but your music is eclectic, and normally all your songs are upbeat. Tell us about Impossible Happiness and why you wrote it. It's a hit song on your Troubadour album. 
<laughs> well, it's kind of an anthem to the pandemic, but it reaches into other problems our society is dealing with now. You know, like like say you know gun violence and and uh, um, oh, climate change. Just every it, it seemed like everything was just up it to a boil, and I had to express it in, in this song. Tell everybody where you are gigging, you and your bands. You oh. are performing this summer. People want to come see you. Saturday, tomorrow, uh, 6 to 10. Today, we're... June 11th. Oh, sorry. <laughs> we're, we are recording on Friday. Saturday, June 11th, we're pro- 6 to 10. We're going to be in Boulder. Um, it's a rooftop place, really nice, and they have excellent food. It's called The Motherload. So the, the Papamo and the Vipers, we play um, kind of Gulf uh, Gulf Coast, Louisiana music, which is upbeat and fun and danceable. Uh, and next week we're in we're at uh, Rockabilly's here in Arvada. Dave Gunders, tell everybody your major business. You don't give up your day job, neither do I. Not yet. It's Lookout Renovation. We're uh, a remodeling, a general remodel company. And thanks for uh, for, for for that, Craig. Here's what happens next. We're going to play. My full interview with Kyle Clark after you listen to Impossible Happiness. After Kyle talks, then you will get my gut reaction on Thursday night to the first day of the January 6th hearing. And at the end, one more word with Kyle Clark. We talk about guns and we discuss the murder of Allen Berg by an assault weapon and the terrible murder two years ago as we record on a beautiful Almost summer, June 10, 2020, of Isabella Thales. My heart goes out to these victims of violent crime and assault weapons. It is the guns. This show dedicated, our episode 100 dedicated to Isabella Thales and Ellen Burke. Thank you, Kyle Clark. Thank you, Troubadour. Thanks, Craig.
myself a double Nobody here I need to impress Outside there's a world in trouble Impossible Happiness Impossible Happiness Impossible Closer catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. This is Kyle. Hey, Kyle. It's Craig. Hey, Craig. How are you? Wonderful. Because you are doing my podcast. Thank you so much. Congratulations on episode 100. I appreciate that. I can tell you just ran in probably from tending to a daughter or a pet or gardening. Or, or or, two out of the three. Yes, girls and gardening have been my morning today. Well, let me give you a proper short introduction, sort of like you do on television. This is the most impactful and important journalist in Colorado right now, the news leader at the news leader, Nine News. And I was explaining to an out-of-state friend why I liked uh, Next with Kyle Clark as a source of uh, daily viewing. And I said it's because I get information, I get entertainment, I get a cool attitude, and I get some opinion. I like all of that, and that's why I'm so excited to have you on. Well, thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate that. And uh, and thank you for tuning in to Next. We've been, on the year, we've been on the air almost six years now, which seems pretty wild. It still feels new to me. Right, but you started this Word of Thanks program that has raised, conveniently for your station, over $9 million over the course of 100 weeks. And I think that's cool. And thank you for acknowledging me putting on a podcast 100 in a row, week after week. And I'm proud of that, just as you must be Word of Thanks. In fact, let's lead with that, because... This is why you are a leader in the community. I've never seen in all my years in Denver anybody raise money quite like you. I mean, there have been other good efforts, but I had a lawyer who lives in Aspen. Yeah, he's made it so big he lives in Aspen. I told him, and he said, I like Kyle Clark. I'd like to have a recurring donation to his weekly charity because I trust his judgment. Isn't that cool? And is that possible? 
That's that's really that's really cool. And there are a number of folks in the community who have been very fortunate financially who do contribute on a weekly basis. But at the core of the word of thanks, microgiving campaigns is people who give five dollars a week. And we've been doing that for one hundred five consecutive weeks now. It started during the lockdown of 2020 when people were stuck at home and they were feeling helpless and they knew that there were people in need, but they didn't know what they could do to help. So we just fired up this idea of what if we picked one small to mid-sized nonprofit each week that's making an impact that could do more if they had more resources, and then we pulled people's $5 donations. We started this having no idea whether people would give to it or not. The very first week out of the gate, people raised $90,000, five bucks at a time and more. And we've stayed after it every week since with the idea of every Wednesday, we present some cause to the community. And the thing that I, I've disliked about previous fundraising campaigns in media is sometimes somebody who's got a good job will say, hey, please give money to this. And it's like, well, how about you first? You're wearing a nice suit or a nice dress. Why don't, why don't you pony up a check first? So that's what I do each week. I, I match the first 50 bucks in the uh, the first uh, 50 uh, donors in the door uh, with five dollars, and uh, off to the races we go. And it's been, it's been really cool to see so many small nonprofits in our community uplifted by a random knock on the door from strangers across Colorado who say, "Hey, we'd like to pull five dollar donations and help you out." I'm wondering about competition. A lot of charities probably try to get your ear. How do you handle all of that? So we do get hundreds upon hundreds of nominations, and we're always looking for causes that seem a bit different than the ones that we featured before. And it, admittedly, it's a subjective judgment, but I'm looking to find nonprofits that are large enough that they have the infrastructure to put our donations to good use if we were to say raise $50,000 for them next week. So they're large enough to do that. They're large enough to be financially stable in, in their leadership and operations, but yet they're small enough that $50,000 matters to them and matters in a significant way to them. Because if I'm asking somebody at home to give their hard-earned dollars to something, I want it to be meaningful both to them and to the recipient organization. So that's what we're always looking for. But we have a list of hundreds of nonprofits that we're going to be considering in the future, and we're always looking for more. So if somebody wants to shoot me an email, it's just next at 9news.com. I read every single email that comes in there. We get a couple hundred a day. A bunch of those are about word of thanks. And I would love people's suggestions about great nonprofits that we could uplift together. How do you do all that? How do you handle your Twitter, your texts, your emails? I mean, my God, you're father, a husband. How do you do all this? A small amount of sleep. Uh, I, I, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that I'm of an age in health where I can put in a bunch of hours a day. Uh, our Word of Thanks microgiving campaigns are something that I do in my free time. I don't take work time to do that. Uh, so it's, but that's, it's, it's rewarding enough that, that I, you know, I don't mind spending time outside of, of work on that. And then when I'm at work, we have a fantastic team that puts together next. And after five, six years, we've learned how to try and stay on top of, of the daily news cycle. And give people a bit more than perhaps what they're used to seeing from local television news, a bit more of a focus on on policy and, and analysis and deeper dive issues, as opposed to simply, here's a collection of car wrecks and fires, weather and sports. All right. I knew you'd bring up your team and I like them too. So let's talk about them right now because Chris Vanderbeen, look up that episode about two months ago. We talked about his feature on chokeholds he has another term for it but he won a big award 
Love Chris Vanderby and Jeremy Hohola, one of my first guests, because he has so much courage, so much intelligence, and he has everything. And then Marshall Zellinger, I had him on my radio show a lot. I need to get him back, because even though Kyle Clark said watch the J6 hearing instead of next last night, I found it on Channel 5. I recorded it, and it was about one of my favorite topics, Maurice Rose, who we featured on my show many times. In fact, as I sit here, I'm looking at a medal Marshall Fogel gave me on the occasion of Maurice Rose's uh, elevation to what it always should have been, Colorado Heroes. So let's talk about Chris first, Kyle. I got a lot in there. Let's brag on him a little bit. Well, sure, and and if you want to talk, if you want to talk General Rose, we can talk General Rose too, because I think I think his uh, is a, a story of tremendous impact in American history, and I love that Colorado and Denver is going to learn more about him. But I, Chris Chris Vanderveen, quite simply, is he was one of the journalists that I most admired before I came to Nine News fifteen years ago. I knew his work well before I came to Denver. And I joined Nine News because I wanted to work with really talented reporters and photojournalists. And that included Chris Vanderveen. I, I think I, I've, I've had I've had the opportunity to work with a ton of immensely talented people. Chris Vanderveen is in a class by himself, I think, when it comes to local broadcast journalists in America in terms of the range of stories that he can cover with impact, everything from uh, heartfelt features to deep dive investigative work. Uh, just yesterday, it was announced that, he, that uh, he, was an award, he was awarded the Peabody for his work with photojournalist Chris Hansen on his series Prone about the deaths of, I believe, 132 Americans who were handcuffed on their chests under right. the weight of police officers who died. People who did not have right. to die. Yes, people who did not have to die if better training was brought to bear. That is life-saving journalism. That is journalism with impact. And Chris Vanderveen, whether it is on the issue of, of medical bills or on the issue of, of criminal justice reform, he has shown a unique ability in local television journalism to do that kind of impactful work again and again and again. I, I just think, you know, he, he grew up here. He's, he's a native son of Colorado. And I, I hope that people know how lucky we are as Coloradans that he lives and works here. I agree. Let's not dwell on Marshall Zellinger. I'm going to have him on. R.I.P. Kosher, his dog. What a personality. Was that your decision to steal him away from Channel 7? How'd that happen? <laughs> I, that's what we refer to as the Marshall Plan. Uh, I, I remember talking to him. Boy, when would this have been? I think it was down covering the Waldo Canyon fire outside Colorado Springs. And I was doing live shots alongside him and just kind of ribbing him about, you know, how long, how long do you come work at Nine News? You'll come work at Nine News, right? Come on, come work at Nine News. He, again, is somebody who is able to do what very few journalists are able to do, which is to work simultaneously on the news of the day, the story that everybody gets assigned to, but somehow Marshall Zellinger is going to find out just a little bit more, or he's going to have a little bit more context and analysis based on his experience and his intelligence and his work ethic. That guy works 100 miles per hour every day. He's not somebody who shows up on the TV three times a year you know, with a big special. And that kind of work is fantastic, too. That's very meaningful. But it's a different thing. And it's different. It's harder in a different way to do that work five days a week. And that's what Marshall does. Right. Another native. I take pride in that, being fourth generation, yep. and it recalls the direct exam. I watched a friend 
Hello, witness. Hello. Where where do you live? Denver. What part of Denver? Aurora. And I thought that was funny. Um, a lot of people <laughs> talk that way. And I want to bring up Jeremy, Jeremy Hohola in this context because when I did a Saturday morning radio show, we like to cover things local like the Leslie Branch Y scandal involving Michael Hancock. And you know, Denver Trump Radio, which is what I call it now, maybe White Power Radio. They love picking on Hancock too, but I, I didn't care. I, I sort of, uh, I put in a Cora request and Jeremy Hohola called me and said, Craig, you put in the first one. We'd like to join you because they're going to rip us off on costs. And then Jeremy and Tony Kovaleski and eventually KDBR and John Murray from the Post. We put together a coalition so they couldn't overcharge us on the cost. And we led this story on radio, nine news. In fact, everybody shared in it. And it was a beautiful thing. So I got to know Jeremy then. But more impactful is the guts I've seen him display in confronting racism. He does it on nine news. He found a big time Nazi in Denver that scared the crap out of me. And most journalists would have been afraid to report on this. He taught me things about the place I used to work, about Kirk Woodland being a neo-Nazi and posting his adoration of Adolf Hitler, about the Proud Boys. We're going to get a radio show on KNUS, and you can listen to a link on my Twitter of Randy Corcoran just having a love fest with a leader of the Colorado Proud Boys Back in 2019, Jeremy Hohola is one of the few reporters and what you guys are one of the few stations that takes this seriously. And I contend it's the biggest story on my mind today. Go with that, Kyle, if you would. And, and I bet you have trees getting sawed down just like I do in my neighborhood. <laughs> this is the danger of doing an interview it's, in your garden. It's all you good. Know? It's uh, it's it's springtime in Colorado. People are doing work in their yards. Right. Uh, I I echo what you say about Jeremy and the courage that he displays in in his work because he takes on white supremacism and anti-Semitism and all forms of racism and prejudice head on, and he confronts these people and he calls them out and he brings their activities to light and he does so at personal physical danger to himself. He knows, just like every reporter in town knows, if you shine a spotlight on these extremists, you will receive physical threats, if not worse. And Jeremy is doing this work as a person of color in our community, which layers an additional amount of risk onto what he does. And I think it's hugely courageous. I agree, but it's right back on you. You are part of these reports, and you do it at considerable risk. And, I, I mean, does it go through your mind, Kyle? Is it worth it? Your father, your daughters mean everything. Is it worth it? That's a conversation, that's a conversation that my wife and I have had a bunch. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's it's something that we constantly have to reassess. I think we would be foolish not to do that. But... The work is that important, and the issue is that important in terms of what is what's the what's the power that extremists hold in our society, and to what extent does that endanger 
the lives of our neighbors? And how does that change the way that we function as a society? So, so yes, doing that work inherent in it now these days are threats of violence against journalists, against their family members, against their spouses, threats of violence against their children, their co-workers. But there have to be some people who are willing to stand up and say, I won't be driven out of this space. I won't be silenced by your threats. And I will note that a big component in this is whether or not news management and the ownership of news outlets is willing to stand fully behind journalists who do this work to say, we will protect you in every sense of the word. Wow. You nailed it. It's a conversation you have to have in a family, and I respect that. Lots of families have had this conversation. I wrote a Colorado Sun column about people who are deciding whether to have children and how violence, threats of violence, uh, the gun plague in our society. You have to think about these things, and smart couples talk about it, but you have exactly come to the right conclusion that if you walk away, what hope does society have? That's why I salute your courage in standing up to the bullies and the mobsters, because that's what they want, right? They want to drive people uh, away through their intimidation tactics, and uh, it's horrible. Well, I, I think there's there's the issue of reporting on extremism in our community, and then there's the ripple effect of that, which is the way that other people feel emboldened to express uh, vile ideas uh, and to you know verbally assault people in the community and things like that. And and I understand the idea that some people say, well, you shouldn't call it out, you shouldn't bring light to that, you you just amplify it. I also think at the end of the day, the people who are doing this to our neighbors, they're bullies. They're bullies. And we also understand the power, thinking back to our childhood classroom days, of what happens when somebody stands up and looks a bully in the eye and says, sit down, sit down. And, and, that, and that empowers more people to also stand up against those bullies and say, sit down. That hate's not welcome here. That violence isn't welcome here. And I worry that if we aren't standing up to that kind of thing, that the people who are the targets of hate and of prejudice and of harassment might get the mistaken impression that the rest of us in our community don't stand with them. What about you, Kyle Clark? You seem to be the center of a lot of attention, and I was thinking about it, and I wonder if any of the extra vitriol is because you are such a white boy. I mean, you'd be a perfect recruit for the Proud Boys. No offense, but your blue eyes, you're Caucasian. Do, do, I, do you think that's part of it, or, or why are you such a target of their wrath? I, I honestly had never thought about it that way, um, but you, you are correct in pointing out that I'm, I'm pretty white-bred. I'm pretty, you know, like, you know, straight white guy off the assembly line from rural, uh, you know, rural America. Like, I, I, I guess that's fair. I, I don't know. I, I'm not certain how a local TV news journalist in, in Denver, Colorado, ended up becoming the fixation of some some folks in extremist circles as well as some folks in like political and media circles I, 
it seems it seems kind of silly um, because they they operate in they operate in this conflict of you know the work that journalists d- uh, does the the work that journalists do doesn't matter but yet we're going to spend all day long fixated on every word that you say you know there's there's a there's there's some uh, cognitive dissonance there absolutely um i think i know why you are the target though it's because you cover the race issues that matter for example after charlottesville you took note of events donald trump saying both sides were bad and Somehow you took note of me being on my Saturday morning radio show, ripping the shit out of Donald Trump for saying that. Next thing I know, Kyle Clark is calling me to come on next, and I'm wondering, wow, should I do it? But I thought, yeah, I'm going to. And that was the most impactful encounter I've had with you and kind of a turning point in my career. I don't regret it because... I just could not live with myself backing bigotry, and now it's come to fruition with these January 6th hearings, which has established in my mind, especially with the timeline, that Donald Trump was in a conspiracy with the Proud Boys. And it's unbelievable to me. It's upsetting. But let's go back to Charlottesville and your decision to change the course of my life. Why did you do it? Because I'm interested when interesting people say interesting things and when people have the courage to break with conventional thought. We live in this age, uh, especially on online and on social media, of debate me, bro. You know, every, debate me, bro. You know, come in here and debate me, bro. And it's like, well, that's probably a waste of your time and mine because I know exactly what you're going to say. And that's not going to be particularly interesting or insightful, uh, especially to my audience. Uh, my goal is to present the folks who watch next with viewpoints that are that are interesting, that are divergent that are unconventional. I'm especially interested in people whose views change over time. I mean, I guess there are some political reporters that like to ding a political figure when their views change. To me, that's fascinating. Let's have that conversation about why your views have changed. Somebody whose views don't change in life in light of new information does not strike me as a particularly insightful or interesting person. So I asked you to come on because I heard somebody who was grappling with hard stuff and was challenging their own preconceived notions of what was going on in the world. And on every single issue, that's what I find most interesting. Not this idea of debate me, bro. Right. You asked me good, hard questions. People can find that online. And I heard your report uh, talking about the Colorado connections to January 6th. I'm still worked up over what I saw last night. I thought it was a great prosecutorial display. I'm proud of uh, Liz Cheney, her mama Lynn, both graduates of the Colorado College. Did you know that? Down in Colorado Springs where you can't be stupid. You can't be stupid enough to buy the big lie. And I'm so proud of her that she didn't. And they put on a great presentation. But before I get ahead of myself and start talking about John Eastman the way he did on your show... And I know you're going to cover the Colorado connections to the big lie. Just your gut reaction to January 6th. And this is what I love about doing a podcast. And then I'll shut up. I got worked up 
because I did afternoon drive and I always had to have an opinion. I thought, what will happen if right after I watch it, I just get behind the mic and say what I think? And I did it. I'm interested to hear it. But they got me worked up. I'm going to shut up and get your reaction. I think, Craig, the thing that I struggle with the most is trying to understand how a violent attempted coup and insurrection at the U.S. Capitol becomes a both sides political issue as opposed to an issue that nearly every man, woman and child in America goes, I don't care about politics. That's wrong. That's a threat to America. And we must stand united against it. I mean, I just I think about, you know, I think about the attacks of 9-11 and and the commission that investigated 9-11. And you didn't have folks on that commission making the case for why America deserved it. You know, there's there's just there's no reason why political violence should be a part of either major party. It's not what it's not what either major party has stood for and, and nor should they stand for it. I mean, political violence is not a conservative principle. I mean, it, it's it, it stands against what traditional American conservatism has has said that that it believes. So I just I, I grapple with this idea that anybody feels the need to either outright defend a violent attack on the Capitol or indirectly defend it by throwing out misinformation, misdirection, whataboutism, as opposed to simply, if you participated in this or if you encouraged this, that does not belong in America. That's not what America does. Right. I'm not sure it's both sides. I feel like it's one side showed up and the other said, we're not playing. The rules aren't fair. And whatever you come up with is bullshit because... Uh, it's a dog and pony show. That's Dan Kaplis' promo. We're going to have Christy Burton Brown on to examine this dog and pony show. Now, I hope Dan changes by Friday afternoon, but I don't have much hope. And we may bring up Dan Kaplis again, but let's go to something more important, which is how the hell are we supposed to stay neutral? This is something I talked about with Chris in the context of COVID and and the big lie. Let's focus on the big lie that led to January 6th. As a news guy, is it fair to call it a big lie? And I know you do it. You say it's, it, it, in effect, bullshit. You can't say it on 9 News. But you have a way of phrasing it where, hey, folks, these are the facts. We can talk about other things, but these are the facts. Explain your philosophy on that as regards the big lie. And now this insurrection that's been proven in my mind and the implications that Donald Trump engaged in a conspiracy with the Proud Boys. So let's let's take let's take the word lie. What's a lie? A lie is a falsehood that somebody knows to be untrue. And more and more evidence is coming out that the Trump team knew that the claims that they were making about election rigging were lies, were not true. You heard the testimony from Bill Barr at the January 6th committee hearing talking about the lie that originated in Colorado that accused Denver-based Dominion voting systems of rigging the election with the help of Antifa. And Bill, and, and Bill Barr testified that he told the rest of the Trump team that it was crazy, that it was unsupported, no, that it wasn't He used trying. a harsher term that I keep using in this podcast, and I want to hear it out of your mouth, please. 
I, I believe he called it bullshit. Is that yes. correct? Yes. Say it. There Say it. it. Right, just give me the is. full soundbite. Bill Barr called it bullshit. Trump's lawyer, the AG of America, said, hey, this election rigging stuff is bullshit. Anyway, and, that's and pretty good evidence. You know, you don't get that right. often in a court of law. Well, and, and we saw similar evidence that's emerging in the Colorado-based lawsuit related to Dominion voting systems and the claims that they rigged the election and increasing evidence that people within the Trump orbit knew that this stuff was not true and they still put it out there. And and this to me, Craig, is, is the biggest thing that we have to grapple with as a society, as journalists, as people who are interested in politics is the role of truth and reality in society and the fact that lies are not harmless. Lies are not just another way to accumulate or hold on to political power. Lies get people killed. Lies get people killed. And we see it with January 6th. We see it with political extremism in this country. And this idea that that a lie about election rigging is just some harmless fun that we can have in a party primary or something else to get people whipped up. And, well, it doesn't really matter if it's true. It gets people excited. It gets people killed. I think about people like you with editorial discretion. And that's a big deal, as we saw last night. Fox News chose not only to uh, not air the January 6th Select Committee, they had Tucker Carlson on without commercials. What did you make of that? I mean, I've worked in in television for close to 20 years. There's a reason why you don't take commercials. It's to make sure that nobody changes the channel. Right. But think about it this way. Their advertisers like to sell to the big lie crowd. If they change the channel, they might not be receptive to those commercials on other days of the week. So it's in the commercial interest of all involved over there. You can sell more pillows. I think every person who works in journalism, every person who works in media, has to stop and ask themselves, In what way am I participating in what's going on right now in American society where an alternate reality is being built and actively stoked amongst my neighbors, amongst my family members, amongst my friends, and this dangerous alternate reality that turns people against each other, that puts people in physical danger? Journalists do not need to be neutral when it comes to lies. There, there's, there's no reason that lies should be presented as the other side of the truth. There's a different and separate discussion about whether journalists should be neutral on whether democracy continues to exist in America. And we could have that discussion. But even setting that aside, journalists are involved in this, this conflagration in America, whether we want to be or not. You can't sit this out. 
you can say this is somebody else's thing to cover or this is national media or whatever else because people are being radicalized by lies in Colorado. Society is being torn apart by lies in Colorado. Lives are being put in jeopardy in Colorado. And it's time for journalists to recognize that we are part of this ecosystem of what's happening and we need to take account of our own actions and figure out what we're going to do going forward. What about both sides on the on the Proud Boys? Have you guys in Nine News thought about a pro and con piece about, well, here are the bad sides of the Proud Boys. They're anti-Semites. They get drunk all the time. They're misogynistic. Uh but on the on the bright side, there's you know a clothing style. I don't know. They have those snappy polo shirts. Yes. Yep. I mean, it, it, what about the Proud Boys? Now that it appears that a case is going to be made that they coordinated this insurrection with the former president of the United States, how will Nine News and more specifically Kyle Clark talk about the Proud Boys? You know, Craig, I'll be honest, I have not given the Proud Boys a whole lot of thought in the last year or two. And I think the reason for that is the kinds of things espoused by the Proud Boys and other radical organizations have so seeped in to mainstream conservative politics that the Proud Boys to me are are almost kind of immaterial to Colorado politics, which is what I cover, because if the concern is what effect does that vitriol and that deception have on our society? You can hear it from candidates for office. You don't have to look at the Proud Boys. You're right. There are bigger fish to fry. Let's talk about Tucker Carlson. Do you take any of his show? He is very influential. Kind of the Kyle Clark of the right. You want to extrapolate that a bit? Well, he's... Uh... Got a certain amount of charisma. He likes to smile. He takes total control of his show. People on the right think he's brilliant. I think he's a bigot. I think he's a white supremacist. I'm down with the Anti-Defamation League that say, Fox News, you need to fire this guy. You are not exactly popular, Kyle Clark, in Republican circles. Heidi Ganahl won't even talk to you. Greg Lopez just tries to bounce off of you. Most of your audience are probably unaffiliated like me, the majority of Coloradans. Some Republicans hate watch you. A lot of Democrats love you, with good reason. So I'm saying that you are influential for people in the middle and on the left, whereas Tucker Carlson has a certain something on television that lets him be the leader of the right. How about that for an answer? Is that good? I think a big difference you would see opposed from just does next promote disinformation and bigotry, which it doesn't, uh, would be the composition of our audience and our goal. This actually came up the other day. I was asked by an elected official in Colorado um, who supposed that the audience of next must be overwhelmingly um, leftist. Uh, this is a Republican elected official. Uh, and we actually had some research on that not too long ago. Uh, so I had I had the numbers pretty fresh off the top of my head. And the only group in Colorado's body politics that is overrepresented significantly in the next audience is unaffiliated voters. Uh, they make up more than half of next audience. And the proportions of Democrats and Republicans in next audience is pretty proportionate to the rest of the population. I do not think that you would find that about um, the primetime shows on 
Fox News or even the primetime shows on MSNBC. And I think part of that is that when we launched Next in 2016, we specifically wanted to bring analysis and commentary back into the local news space. As, as you know, it was in the local news space decades ago in Colorado with Carl Akers and others. We wanted to bring that back, but to go in a different direction than what cable news does, okay? So cable news is throwing red meat or blue meat, if you prefer, to a base to get them uh, you know, uh, worked up about the outrage du jour. You know, our team good, other team bad. And our thought was, what if we brought in commentary and analysis without advocating on policy, without advocating for partisan causes, but based on shared values, transparency, fairness, accountability, things that Coloradans as neighbors should be able to agree with one another on, even if they disagree about politics. That was our stated goal from the start of Next. And it's it's very rewarding to, to me to learn that our audience is made up of a, of a cross-section of Colorado that looks like the population, might skew a little bit more unaffiliated. But that's rewarding to me. And my goal is every night to find some issue on which we can say, wherever you are on the political spectrum, this, this, cannot, this cannot stand. This is not what we stand for. This is not what we're about. Let's hold these folks to account. Your point is very well taken. And regularly on Next, I hear criticisms of Jared Polis, for example, questioning how he's taking credit for these returns that are mandated anyway. He's accelerating them. So your point's well taken, but hopefully you appreciate that not a lot of right-wing people on Twitter are quoting you kindly. There's a bit of a war, right? And, and but, but you're right. You get much more objective information. I go to Next for news. I don't go to Tucker Carlson for news, and I don't really with Rachel Maddow, although I respect her greatly, and you've been featured on her show of late. What do you make of Rachel? I, I think she's a superb storyteller. I'll be honest, I don't catch a lot of her show because it's on at a time that I'm preparing our own newscast. I'll, I'll catch clips here and there. Uh, and I think there have been one or two occasions where we've said something uh, in regards to Colorado politics, and they've said, "Hey, would you come on and talk about this?" And uh, and I'm I'm happy to I'm happy to go on anybody's show if there's somebody who is an interesting, thoughtful person who says interesting, thoughtful things. I'm I'm not interested in going on some show where where people are just going to you know harangue the opposition or spread disinformation or go through you know banal talking points. But I'm always happy to talk to interesting uh, people. I think she's an interesting person. I think she's a thoughtful person. She's clearly had an impact on American society, whether people like her, uh, like her politics or, or not. You touched on a subject that a lot of people are thinking about, especially with these revelations about the Proud Boys putting two and two together. It's hard for me to be friends with Republicans. Maybe they haven't heard about it and they're going to try to pretend they are ignorant, but this is divisive in our community at Little League games, in churches, synagogues, clubs, workplaces. This is terrible, Kyle. Do you feel it? And what can we do about it? I think it goes back to that idea, Craig, of how do we how do we sew society back together? How do we restore bonds between neighbors based on all of the things that we have in common and the values that we share? 
And one of those values should be, what's the truth? Because if we can't operate from a shared reality, then that's going to be at first divisive and then later dangerous. I still think that we have far more in common than we have apart. And I, I, I get that, you know, Republicans don't like it when I call out leaders in their party for doing things that are inconsistent with the truth. Jared Polis and Democrats don't like it when I call him out for taking credit for taxpayer bill of rights refunds that were going to be coming anyway, or when he refuses to answer uh, what role Kim Kardashian had in the pardon of Rogel Aguilera Medeiros, the I-70 truck who smashed into that line of cars and killed people. Like, I, I get it. It's not fun when your favorite politicians go under the microscope, but you can take it one of two ways. You can, you can get angry with the jurors who raises the question, or you can say, I expect the leaders of my political philosophy to have good answers for their actions. You can go one of two directions. And I'm heartened as a journalist when people say, boy, that, that kind of made me squirm, but you know, it was a fair question. And man, I, I wish that he or she had a better answer for you. And then the other reaction is, you know, I'm going to set up 16 anonymous Twitter accounts and I'm going to troll you for 12 hours a day, hoping to drive you out of the public sphere. I'll be honest, the latter is not a particularly persuasive method of getting through to, to journalists. You are a huge Twitter presence. What will Elon Musk mean to the product if he goes through with the sale? And why do you spend so much of your time on Twitter? Two very good questions. I, I do not spend any time worrying about what Elon Musk is going to mean to Twitter. Uh, as, as you mentioned, Craig, I got two little kids at home. Uh, I've, I've got the Word of Thanks uh, charity campaigns to run. I got three newscasts to do a day. Uh, I've got a garden that I've put way too many plants in. I got lots of things to worry about other than Elon Musk and Twitter. Whatever happens there is, is, is going to happen. Uh, that's for somebody else to, to worry about. In terms of why I spend time there, I find it to be a terrific news feed. I also find it to be a terrific way to find out what people in the community are thinking. And it's the reason why on Twitter you'll find that I, you know, I follow everybody from, you know, uber conservative farmers on the Eastern Plains to, you know, uh, 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 super leftist uh, activists in the city of Denver. And I'm really interested on any given day what they're talking about, because it might not be what I'm talking about or what I'm hearing from my neighbors. So I think it's just a great way to kind of listen in while, while acknowledging that it's used by a minority of the population. It is not the public sphere. It is not, uh, you know, what the public thinks about things. It tends to be a hypercharged, hyperpartisan environment. But as long as you know that that's what it is, it is worthwhile for social listening. So do you instantly tweet back or do you write it, think about it, edit it? How does it go? Are you that quick on your feet? And there are rarely spelling errors or anything. Well, I... I I should probably have more unspoken thoughts. No, but it's great. It's like traveling through the world with Kyle Clark, especially you reply to people and you try to be pithy. Your first instinct is always humor. Am I right? Well, yeah, because a lot of times when somebody comes at you with vitriol and, and you react with humor that can be disarming and that can, that can show the person that like, you know, there's a different path forward for this conversation. And it's interesting. There's a there's a, a message that I have saved on my phone 
a little cut and paste that I'll I'll send to generally anonymous trolls, the folks who don't have the courage to put their name or their face on what they say on social media, but who are lashing out over and over and over again. And the message is simply an invitation to connect privately off of social media, uh, phone number, email, that kind of thing. Like if you ever want to like really connect, like here's how we can connect. And typically I'm muting that person uh, on social media so that they're not cluttering uh, my mentions with, you know, rage and that kind of thing. But it's interesting the number of people who will reach out privately and say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm so-and-so, you know, I'm, I'm John 87524 or whatever. And I said this to you on social media. And then we're able to have a conversation. Doesn't mean that we're going to agree, but we're able to have that conversation. And it just lets folks know that if what they're interested in is substantive discourse, we can have that. But at the end of the day, I'm not interested in having substantive conversations with other people while anonymous folks stand in a ring around it and heckle people. My wife and I are kind of empty nesters now. We have ambitions to roam around Colorado, my native state. One of the things I love about Next is that you focus all over the state of Colorado and your word of thanks campaign, take me to parts of the world that need athletic fields, whatever, Western Slope. And it teaches me a lot. And I love your focus on Colorado, especially when it comes to this insurrection, the big lie coup by Donald Trump and his allies. And you are leading the league, probably the world, in tracing out the Colorado connections. Why is that important to you and Nine News? I don't think people realize how much of the big lie got started in Colorado, was brought to a boil in Colorado, and was advanced by people in Colorado. It's it's way beyond what you might think from just a cursory look at the coverage. Take the lie that Dominion voting systems based in Denver conspired with the leftist anarchist group Antifa to rig the election against Donald Trump. Court filings indicate that the genesis of that claim was Joe Oltman, a wealthy business owner from Douglas County, very well connected in Republican politics. His group, FEC United, collected signed loyalty pledges from Republican elected officials and candidates in Colorado. The court filings indicate that he was the genesis of this idea about election rigging that made its way all the way up to Trump's inner circle, where it was deemed to be would Barr say bullshit and then was still propagated because it was useful bullshit. And that came from Colorado. Obviously you've got president Trump's. And and can I interject? It it, it came through Denver radio because old man was shepherded by Randy Corcoran onto his show. They're both getting sued now over this. So is Salem media handed off to Peter Boyles who gave him two soft interviews and uh, then Altman was shared with Salem Media people, Michelle Malk, and another Colorado connection. Sorry to interrupt, uh, but I just wanted to throw in the radio aspect of this because I've been following that closely. No, that it's useful to point out the other Coloradans who are getting sued right now for propagating these election rigging claims. Uh, and you mentioned, um, you mentioned uh, Salem and obviously Michelle Malkin, who lives and works out of, uh, out of Colorado Springs. In terms of other connections in this orbit of like, how did America 
go off the rails from simply we have an unconventional and controversial president who won an election and then lost an election to there's a violent insurrection attempting to stop the counting of electoral votes. You know, those are two wildly different things. How did we get there? And what role did Coloradans play? You have Jenna Ellis, formerly of Colorado Christian University, who was on the president's uh, team with Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, uh, who were promoting these theories. And then increasingly, a name that I was not very familiar with at the beginning of this story, who now might be one of the more influential Colorado presences in what happened was John Eastman, the visiting scholar at, at CU. And, and his role in laying out, uh, per the filings with uh, the January 6th committee, laying out the blueprint of how to overturn American democracy. The step-by-step -step checklist given to Vice President Mike Pence of basically like, you know, how to, how to overthrow democracy for dummies. And this, of course, was the plan that the vice president's team was unwilling to implement. And I think that Coloradans should know that the guy writing the blueprint of how to fundamentally change America was using his CU email. I mean, not that the email really matters, but he was a visiting scholar at CU. That that matters. And and that's before you even get into the periphery of other figures, you know, the uh, role of Congresswoman Lauren Boebert from Western Colorado telling her followers amassed outside the Capitol today is 1776. Everybody knows what happened in 1776. The role of then state legislator, now top line U.S. Senate candidate Ron Hanks, present in D.C. on January 6th. He says he did not enter the Capitol. I take him at his word. He then claimed that it was Antifa, suggested that it was Antifa that went into the Capitol and suggested that maybe foreign intelligence agencies could come in and and subvert American democracy and keep President Trump in power. These are Coloradans. These are Coloradans that have significant roles in our politics who were right at the center of this thing. Have you ever felt the need to text somebody on another station while they're on the show to say, don't go down this road? It's kind of a no-no, right? You wouldn't want somebody to do that. And being on there, I wouldn't either. But I did text Dan Kaplis on November 16, 2020, because he was talking about me and uh, back into the, something about me. And then he brought up Jen Ellis, and then he brought her on. And she was pitching that stop the steal bullshit. And he was giving it a fair audience. And Jen Ellis is the greatest. She'd never lie about anything. And I texted him. I said, don't do this big lie. It's a dangerous road. It's going to lead to terrible things. Anyway, he keeps vouching for Jenna Ellis. And she used to fill in for me. I've had her on as a guest many times. I know she's guested with you. She, she has. Uh, yeah, she, it, yeah. She's been on, as you've been on next a couple of times. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I have not followed her comments as closely as many of the others because a lot of it seemed to be things that she was echoing versus originating. But there was one instance in particular where I believe that she was she was on Dan Kaplis' show here in town where she, where she suggested that widespread voter fraud not only had changed the outcome of the national election, but was present in Colorado as well. And that was a new claim that I had never heard made 
by somebody of any kind of political stature. And I was I was discouraged to hear that she was not asked for evidence of that claim while on the radio, nor did I ever hear her offer evidence of that claim. And mysteriously, she stopped making the claim shortly after uh, she made the claim on the radio and we reported it publicly. Right. And, and their silence is damning. The lack of hard questions, just like Joe Altman, he says, I intercepted an Antifa call. Wait a second. Now explain this to me. How did it happen? You know, they did not ask hard questions. Michelle Malkin, she hung up on me during a podcast, but I got a lot out of her before that happened. And she is part of this radical right wing that borders on QAnon with General Mike Flynn. And have you seen that Jenna Ellis is traveling the country with Mike Flynn as part of these QAnon shows? She's a superstar now. I, I think when we talk about the radicalization that's happening in politics and how it tears families apart, we got a lot of flack for reporting on QAnon at a local level with people saying, why are you giving a platform to this? This doesn't matter. And then within a couple of months, you saw the role that QAnon played in stoking the election rigging lies prior to the insurrection. Because QAnon, of course, is part political philosophy, part kind of, you know, uh, a, a religious, you know, almost kind of end end times philosophy. This idea that President Trump was eventually going to going to round up and execute his opponents who are Democrats and pedophiles who drink the blood of children. Like th these are things that are truly believed by people in our community. I think about, you know, the the mother from Douglas County who was arrested and accused of of plotting with a QAnon sniper to try and get her child back out of the foster care system and, and, and face criminal charges for this. This stuff has, has real life impacts. And you see the QAnon philosophy of we will round up and kill our political opponents reflected in the rhetoric of Colorado's Joel Altman, who again, his group collected signed loyalty pledges from Republican candidates and elected officials. His group, FEC United, was led by Christy Burton Brown, who left his organization to run the Colorado Republican Party. Over uh, a couple months ago, he was nominated for governor at the state uh, convention by former House Minority Leader Patrick Neville of Castle Rock. This is a man who has great sway in conservative politics, and he's somebody who has called for the hanging of U.S. senators by name has called for the hangings of journalists, of other political opponents, has suggested that Colorado Governor Jared Polis should be hung. This idea that there are, there are not insignificant folks in Colorado politics who are openly advocating for the mass execution of their opponents should be a story everywhere. I had never heard of Joe Oldman until one day I was listening to George Brockler. I've done probably hundreds of hours of radio. Back when I had a show, Brockler would fill in for Capless. I invited him to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge a lot. He did my podcast, and I told him what I'm telling you is I never heard of Joe Oldman until he was doing live ads on the George Brockler show on Saturday mornings, advertising for some data company, and in my couple of decades in media, I've never heard advertising of that kind. Now, I understand he's successful, and why not? His PIN network got 84K from Douglas County school board candidates backed by Brockler, but somehow this guy ends up advertising 
and becoming a presence on 710 KUS. And I asked Brockler about it, and he said, oh, I got to know him and this and that, but have you explored it? When did you first become aware of Joe Altman? You know, that's a really good question. I think I first became aware of Joe Altman in the fall of 2020 when he made some remarks at an FEC United event at Bandemir Speedway, which were broadcast on YouTube, where he lined up all of the Colorado electeds and candidates that he had loyalty pledges from. And he, boy, I'm not going to be able to quote him exactly, but he issued some warning to journalists that if you're going to write something bad about us, take your name off of it. Mm -hmm. And and that idea that was that was fulminating inside FEC United, um, Christy Burton Brown, currently chair of the Colorado GOP, uh, was working uh, in conjunction with that group as well. This idea that the way to to change uh, political coverage was to threaten journalists, and we saw that happen when a Denver Post reporter put together a piece that was critical of former House Minority Leader Patrick Neville. And then Neville published that reporter's home address. And that kind of that kind of thing shouldn't have to say is very dangerous, is very dangerous. And and I I get the folks who watch next and who follow my social media and say, why are you picking on Republicans? Why are you talking about this guy? And, and why aren't you talking about Democrats? And to, and to which I would say, if you know of a power broker in Democratic Party politics in Colorado who has loyalty pledges from elected officials, who's nominated for governor at the state convention, whose who's preferred candidates and allies have the top on the ballot. If you know of a Democrat who's got that kind of sway, who's calling for the mass hangings of political opponents by name, let me know. Let me know. I'll go wall to wall on that. But the fact that only one group in Colorado is engaging in this conduct calling for the execution of their opponents in public, I can't ignore that simply because it's not both sides. I'm so glad you're not ignoring John Eastman. You said something on your broadcast on Thursday night about his association with Heidi Ganahl. Do tell. So Ganahl is a CU regent, uh, the last uh, statewide elected Republican in Colorado, uh, had been very complimentary of, of Eastman. Eastman was brought in as a visiting scholar. I think it's called the, the Benson Center for, you know, the study of Western civilization or something else. I, essentially, it's, it's, it's kind of like a pseudo affirmative action for conservative thought and academics. I guess they bring in a series of visiting conservative scholars. And in, in the past, this is prior to him writing the blueprint to overthrow uh, democracy, Heidi Ganahl, candidate for governor in Colorado, had been very complimentary of Eastman in terms of him kind of shaking things up. Uh, prior to him outlining the plan on how to overthrow a Democratic election, he had authored some theory about how Kamala Harris wasn't really eligible to be vice president. And I think it was a theory that kind of got laughed out of all kinds of serious academic circles on the left and, and on the right. But that's the kind of thing that it would be interesting to hear from somebody who wants to be Colorado's governor about her relationship with this man. Have they severed ties? What does she think of his role in the insurrection? Um, you know, that kind of thing would be great questions that I'd love to ask her. I'm sure other journalists in town would love to ask her. The Colorado Sun reported recently that Ganahl has not done a single in-depth interview with a mainstream media outlet since the launch of her campaign back in September of 2020. She did a couple of shorter interviews that day that were 
that were tough. I mean, they were pretty, it was pretty rough sledding for her. Uh, and at that point, uh, her team stopped uh, responding to our interview request. They have ignored or declined all of them since September of 2020. I need to invite Heidi. I've met her a time or two, and uh, I've taken my dogs to Camp Bow Wow, and they had a good experience. I did invite Joe O'Day, and he's scheduled to be my guest on episode 101. I'm looking forward to that. He took a brave position coming out saying, I I don't want Roe v. Wade disturbed. We'll see how that pans out. Um, What about guests? Do you choose all your own guests and— it's probably like my podcast. You just throw it out there, and how does it work? You know, Next used to have far more guest interviews than we do today, and a lot of that was the pandemic. Uh, when we moved to a remote format, then we had uh, far fewer uh, direct interviews. We kind of went to a Zoom model. And then, uh, to be entirely honest with you, Craig, a lot of the time that I used to spend preparing for one-on-one interviews, I now spend on our nonprofit fundraising campaigns. So I would love for us to get back into this mode of having more direct one-on-one conversations with with Coloradans. But I, I subscribe to the antiquated notion that if you want to lead our state, a hard thing in which you will be confronted with hard questions every day that you should be able to answer hard questions while you run for office and while you are in office. And that goes for Jared Polis and that goes for John Hickenlooper and that goes for all of the Republicans who are running to replace them and and Michael Bennett and everybody else. This, This idea that the way to get elected or the way to govern is to hide in safe spaces, I don't think that brings out the best in anybody of any political stripe. You have a huge impact, not just on Nine News, but on your YouTube channel as well. Uh, Do you have data on how people consume you? So our show was the first that our parent company, Tegna, allowed to be put up on YouTube on a daily basis when Next launched in 2016. And every show goes up in full on YouTube. I don't have those numbers off the top of my head in terms of how many people are watching on linear TV versus watching on YouTube. I, I mean, we're, our team is, is very gratified that Next has found an audience. That, that, was, not, that was not easy doing something um, untraditional in the TV space, and there was no guarantee that that was going to succeed. And we lost about 70% of our audience in the first three months after the show launched. But the goal was not necessarily to produce a TV show for the people who are currently watching local TV news. Our goal was to produce something for folks who gathered their information in other ways and were looking for more policy and analysis and commentary and things like that. And we're certainly gratified that um, for the vast majority of the last, you know, four years or so, Next has been the most watched uh, local newscast in terms of any any time or any channel. That, of course, does not mean that it's any good, nor does it mean that it was bad when, when nobody was watching. It simply means that there are folks who are interested in that kind of conversation. And that makes me hopeful for the future, that there are people who are interested in substantive conversations on a nightly basis. It's tough being number one. And you can't take it for granted. It means you got to keep doing the things that made you number one. Ask Tiger Woods. Ask the United States of America. Get back to basics if you can. You've been so generous with your time. I think I have the best ending because I'm ignorant on this subject. You brought up end times. I think that's New Testament stuff. I haven't read that. I've heard it doesn't end that well for people of my faith. 
But what about QAnon? What about that component? What about Christianity? And this week you took on another, you know, third rail, talking about Catholicism. How do you feel when you approach those topics? Is it kind of, ooh, you shouldn't talk about religion? Or do you have to on occasions like the imminent end of Roe v. Wade? You know, Craig, I, I think that one of the topics that we in local broadcast news have not done a great job of talking about over the last couple of decades is the role of faith in people's lives. And I think there is kind of that discomfort, especially among some journalists of, you know, is is faith a thing that we should acknowledge or talk about? Or is that just something we kind of leave off to the side? But 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 faith is is a motivating influence uh, in a lot of Americans' lives. And I, I think that we should talk about it more often. Uh, the topic that came up this past week was a directive that came from uh, the Archdiocese of Denver and other Catholic bishops across Colorado that politicians who voted for abortion access in the state legislature should voluntarily, voluntarily refrain from taking communion. This is not the hard ban on communion that the Archdiocese in San Francisco and placed on uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, but this was more of a, you are outside communion of the church, you should not uh, take communion. So we reported on that. We asked some questions about, uh, of the archdiocese on whether straying from church teachings on the issue of life applied only to the issue of abortion or whether uh, folks who voted in favor of the death penalty should also voluntarily uh, refrain from taking communion. They told us that abortion was, a, was the preeminent policy issue. So that's the only one that they believe that they have ever issued an order to politicians to stop taking communion over. Uh, but I am I am by no means an expert on Catholicism. I was, I was raised in the Presbyterian Church. Uh, my wife is Catholic, so, um, you know, we'll, we'll go to uh, Mass on, on occasion. But I'm, I'm no expert on Catholicism. But at the same time, when it does play a role in, in public life, then that's the kind of thing that we have to be able to discuss. Well, Kyle, you've been so generous with your time. I have to say that I interviewed you back on the radio four or five years ago, and you have changed. You know what I notice? You don't talk about beer all that much. It's the Great American Beer Fest. Are you psyched, or is it different now that you're a daddy? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm approaching 39 years old, and I've got two kids. Uh, so, uh, so, you know... Beer, beer, is, beer is great, but uh, beer loves you less as you get older. Um, but I, I still love Colorado's craft beer scene. I still think it's a wonderful place to to meet entrepreneurs and to meet new people and to relax in the sunshine and that kind of thing. Uh, I am looking forward to going back to the Great American Beer Festival for the first time in uh, in a couple of years here. But uh, yeah, you're right. It's, I do talk about my daughters in my garden a lot more than I do uh, IPAs and stouts. I like it. Enjoy those years. Thank you very much for your time. It's a real honor to have you as my special guest on episode 100. Stay strong. Colorado needs you. I appreciate that very much, Greg. Congratulations on 100 episodes. Congratulations on being willing to challenge the prevailing thoughts in society and being willing to re-examine your own political views. If we had more folks willing to do that, we'd have a better society. Thank you, Kyle. Thanks, Greg. Have a great weekend. Bye. Now, during the pandemic and otherwise, a lot of people have so much affection for their pets. That must come up all the time. What's going to happen to Scruffy? What can you tell us about that, Michael Bailey? What you can do is create a pet trust in Colorado. You put money into trust, and then that money is available and earmarked 
to care for the dog. And it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years, whichever is shorter. And then when the time frame for the trust is up, you can dictate who gets whatever leftover money or I have several clients who will leave it to some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals. How cool is that? You can go to Mike Bailey's office and he has offices all over and you could meet at your home, whatever. I love the way you practice law. You've kept it going for a long time. Tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer. So my phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. They can call me or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com. And there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me. Oh, the beauty of a podcast where you can just gut react in your home studio after the select committee hearing on Thursday night. And I think they did a good job. Liz Cheney, a graduate of the Colorado College, my college. Anyway, I thought she was great as an attorney. But Benny Thompson, he grew on me too. But the star of the show was Caroline Edwards. And the timeline, which always helps a prosecutor, which I did for 16 years, and this is a strong case against Donald Trump, who in effect beat up Caroline Edwards with his stormtrooper pals, the Proud Boys, with help from the psycho Oath Keepers, the fascist Oath Keepers. But let's focus on the Proud Boys, the ones he told to stand by at the debate. He had this planned, and they went, they scoped the Capitol, found the weak points. It was all timed out. They needed the mob. They had the stormtroopers, and it was Trump's stormtroopers, that asshole bigs of the Proud Boys, who knocked down Carolyn Edwards, this tough cop. This tough cop is now back up, and he's She's going to put down Donald Trump, I hope. Wouldn't that be justice for a woman to be the end of Donald Trump? Because he knew that kind of thing was going to happen. He cheered it on, but he conspired with bigots. And then it comes down to this, which I'm agonizing about. I know a lot of people who still back Trump. I know a lot of people who still won't speak out against Trump. I cannot respect or befriend such people. And that gives me no joy. That causes disharmony in America. But it's really on them now, isn't it? To look at this evidence and say, what the hell? Are we down with the Proud Boys? I mean, how many times do I have to be chased out of places by these motherfuckers? Look at Kanye West. They were going to give the Proud Boys a show. It turned out my producer was neo-Nazi Kirk Woodland. I've seen this shit, and they never talk about it over there, but it's happening at the top levels. Boy, that's sound at the top level, but I'm irritated because it's Donald J. Trump who threw in with the Proud Boys. Forget about KNUS. Forget about that white power crap that spews out of their mouth. The replacement theory Shit! 
that Ryan Schuling puts on his soundbite machine when Dan Kaplis walks in. Hey, play Tucker Carlson. Even though he's been condemned by the Anti-Defamation League, that's a badge of honor if you're from the Michigan militia. Dude calls Kyle Clark Comrade Kyle. As if Ryan Schuling is going to call out Donald Trump for causing Caroline Edwards to be attacked. Back the blue, fellas. 16 years, I had a badge. I worked with the cops. It sickens me to see any cop aligned with Donald Trump. And I hope this changes their heart as they see another person with the courage to put on the uniform and the badge. An American hero, Caroline Edwards. May she please be the downfall of Donald J. Trump. And that's my gut reaction on episode 100. Isn't that well-timed? Kyle Clark plus the start of the biggest congressional hearing of our lifetime. Episode 100, the century mark. I'm proud of that. I'm proud of you listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for hearing me emote. And maybe I'll calm down by the weekend, but I hope not. I hope we all get charged up and momentum builds that America can be better, not great again. MAGA, wish we never heard that term. Thanks for listening. And now for a word from our sponsors. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works. It works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. 
I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. There's a great new Colorado law. It allows victims as far back as January 1, 1960 to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. I loved the strong stand you took on guns in the wake of Uvalde, Texas. Talk to me about guns, Kyle Clark, because I loved your passion, your opinion, and I know you approach it as the father of two beautiful daughters. Tell us why you took that stand. So the stand that I took after the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, was that the conversation that we need to be having about why America has a mass shooting problem that no other nation in the world has is because of the easy access to an enormous amount of firearms. And to me, that is a separate issue from the Second Amendment because no right is absolute. As somebody who who makes his living through the First Amendment, I understand the limits of it and I respect it. I also don't want First Amendment extremists like Alex Jones representing my views on the First Amendment. And I get the sense that Colorado's gun owners don't want the most extreme elements on the Second Amendment representing them. So what I said was simply, the research is clear. Other countries that have similar mental health issues to the United States, similar violent video games and movies to the United States, do not have our rate of mass shootings. The difference is the guns. So we have to talk about the guns. That's not a policy prescription. It's an invitation to bring your best ideas about how we balance responsible gun ownership with public safety. But it's a call to end the sleight of hand to, well, let's talk about this or what about this, the distraction, the the anything but, let's talk about anything but guns. When we know that that is at the heart of a uniquely American problem. I grew up in a rural area where the vast majority of folks responsibly owned guns. In Colorado, we understand the role of responsible gun ownership in society. We also understand the pain of loss that comes from mass shooting. So I feel like if anybody can figure this out and can have a productive conversation, it's Colorado. But the conversation is about guns. Right. And we can go back to 1984 when a prominent radio talk show host was gunned down by an assault weapon in the 1400 block of Adams Street. Or we could go back two years today, June 10, 2020, during the pandemic, while the George Floyd riots were going on, a guy with an assault weapon that he got from a Denver police sergeant blew away beautiful Isabella Thales. And she had a daddy who was wonderful, just like Kyle's daughters have a wonderful daddy. And that daddy is Joshua Thales and the mama's Anna Thales. And I represent Darian Simon, who is wounded. Bella was his beautiful girlfriend. My God, Kyle, it's getting bad out there. And God forbid that we forget about the murder of Isabella Thales. Uh, Her murderer's trial is coming up this summer. We remember her. We remember all the other Coloradans lost to gun violence. We remember the Coloradans who died of suicide because 
they had easy access to a firearm in, and chose to end their lives. And we have to talk about the issue of easy access to a large quantity of weapons in our society and the lethal killing power of, of weapons that people have access to. Again, that is not a policy prescription. That's not my job. But I do feel like it's my job to remind folks of what the issue at play is. And you bring up the death of Alan Berg, which sews together a couple of topics of interest in terms of what happens when people knowingly whip up unstable population that is well-armed and encourages them to target someone in the community who is speaking out. Denver and Colorado know the particular danger that that kind of volatility poses. And, and maybe, it's a, maybe it's the number of years that have passed since Alan's death and it's the willingness of people to whip folks into a frenzy without regard to what the, what the consequences could be. Well said, Kyle Clark. Go back to your gardening and your daughters. Thanks again for your time. Absolutely, Craig. Thank you. Bye. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show. But more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, And I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, You know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to... You know, if you're if you were to pass away, you know who's going to take your dogs? Who would who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs, and so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs, and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you, and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Hey, maybe you know my voice and me from the first half of my career when I was Denver prosecutor. Or maybe you know me from my time on the radio and now on my podcast. But my real job for several decades now has been to fight in the civil arena for victims of crimes. I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. If your life has been damaged through the misconduct of others, there's a great new Colorado law and it's for you. It allows victims as far back as January 1, 1960 to hold accountable the perpetrators 
and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Let's expose the truth. Let's get you some justice. Let me be your voice for a confidential consultation. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Oh boy, that was episode 100. Big thanks to our troubadour, Dave Gunders. What a guy, what an integral part of this podcast. I hope you tell friends about this show. I like to listen on about 1.5. I've been told that I am a court reporter's dream because I don't talk all that fast. But you can speed me up. I won't be offended. I just want you to keep listening. A great rating would be terrific. Subscribe would be nice. Next week, Joe O'Day, Republican candidate for the United States Senate. He has primary challenge against big lie guy, Ron Hanks. That will be interesting. The best part is you listening each week. Thank you for that. Kyle Clark, you made the show. Stay strong. Be well. Thank you again. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.